Hi guys, welcome to The Motleyverse, where many interests are entertained, examined, and explored. I am your host, my name is Nonye, and this is our first official episode on The Motleyverse, and today I'm going to be attempting to discuss The Arrow of God by Chinua Achebe. Um, attempting, because this is quite the piece of work, the piece of literature, art, and I don't know, <laughs> I don't know that I could do it justice, but I'm going to try. This is the second installation of Chinua's African Trilogy. This is my favorite thus far. I am in the middle of reading the third one, which I probably will discuss with you guys at another uh, episode and video uh, or podcast for those listening to this on just audio. Um, but it is my favorite. So uh, the first thing first is that I have to thank Chinua for actually documenting our history we don't have a lot of uh, a lot of work that really gives us a true account of life was like here before colonial rule and this book takes place in the early 20th century so like around 1910 um 1910s uh chinua himself was born in 1930 my grandfather was born, my maternal grandfather was born in 1916. I don't know about my paternal. Um, I, know I didn't get a chance to meet him. But um, so we get to see if Chinua, Chinua was probably very young when this book was taking place. You know, not even young. He wasn't born, right? But if he was as curious and observing as we know him to be, then he probably was asking a lot of questions to the elders, to his father, his uncles, his aunt. He was observing. And so that helped him uh, make him a great writer for us and a good uh, historian for us. So I found myself really enjoying this book, not just as someone who likes to read or who appreciates uh literature, but someone who is an Igbo woman discovering parts of our history that I may not have known. Certain things that were happening in the book, I didn't even remember. Oh, I don't even know the significance of it anymore. And I made a mental note to myself to ask and do some more research on what this actually means, because we don't do those things anymore. A lot of things change with the arrival of colonial rule to Africa. Things change for the better, of course, uh, and some things... Uh, arguably changed for the worse, not arguably, yeah, probably changed for the worse. So uh, I wonder how non-Igbo people, non-Nigerians uh, appreciated this book or read it. I can't imagine that um, uh, that you had the same, uh, that you relished it as much as I did. And if you are, if you did, I, I do please share with me. I want to know what you thought about the book. Um, I found that I was eager to finish it. I was eager to read more. I was eager to find out more, not just from the hour of God, but uh, Things Fall Apart, which I read when I was younger. But, you know, I reread it again when I was, you know, going through this trilogy again. Hour of God and No Longer East, I don't recall reading them before. I don't recall the stories. But uh, Things Fall Apart, I had read it in the past. And even though I'd forgotten quite a lot of it, but reading it again, I found a lot of it came back to my associative memory and I was recalling a lot of things and a lot of stories. I also wanted to say that I like The Arrow of God. I told you guys this is my favorite of the books and I wondered why this book did not get as much international success or wasn't as critically acclaimed as Things Fall Apart. People in America read Things Fall Apart. People all over the world read, read Things Fall Apart. I do know that secondary schools in Nigeria read Arrow of God. 
Um, but even in Nigeria, I think Things Fall Apart was the more successful book. And like I told you guys, I prefer Hour of God. So I wondered why uh, Things Fall Apart was more successful. I have some ideas, but it's just me thinking. I don't know if it, if if there's any basis or if there's any truth to my ideas. You guys can tell me and share with me why do you think Things Fall Apart was more successful? Um, which one did you like better? One of the things I think that may have been a hindrance to Arrow of God is that I noticed that there there was a lot more dialogue in Arrow of God, and the arrow and the dialogue was literal translations of how the conversation would have happened in Igbo. If you guys study languages or know multiple languages, you know that sometimes when you translate something literally, it loses its meaning, its significance, and sometimes it doesn't flow as well in the other language if you do a literal translation. Um, and a lot of times when I was reading Hour of God, I felt that, you know, the conversations happened in Chinua's mind in Igbo. And then he translated it literally in English. And so I could see how somebody who does not know the Igbo language or who doesn't know a second language might not, it might read funny. It might slow the understanding and digestion of the book. And perhaps that's what kind of slowed it from becoming more critically acclaimed. I don't think there was as much, um, there was as much dialogue in Things Fall Apart. Um, Another reason why I think I may have liked Arrow of God better is like, I think I like our protagonist, our principal character here in Arrow of God much better than Okunkwo of Things Fall Apart. I felt that he was, I better understood him more than Okunkwo. And maybe that's just because of my personalities, my personality and what I'm more inclined to like. But even though Izul was arguably a difficult character, because we had a godlike perspective of him, meaning that we understood Chinua led us into his thoughts, in his emotions, in his feelings, more so much more than the people around him. Whereas his wives and his children and his friends were not privy to the things that he was thinking and feeling. Us, the readers, were. And I felt that I empathized with him. Even when he was making a mistake, I saw that he was just, he, it, it, it was not necessarily malicious. He was just making a mistake. So I felt like I liked him better. I also liked him because he was much, um, there was something that he was, he had that Okonkwo was lacking. And that is that he was willing to be the lone voice in the crowd. He was not afraid to stand up for what he believed in. Okonkwo too was also willing to stand up for himself, but Okonkwo was much more, uh, sensitive to what people thought about him and how people uh, uh, viewed him. He cared a lot about that, which is something that happens a lot of in our in our culture. But Izulu did not care much about that. He was willing to do what he felt was right, even if uh, he lost favor with his friends and his family. But I think I'm going to talk more about, I'm going to compare them uh, more later on. Um, I also th think that Izulu was... Okunko was a man of physical strength and force. Uh, Okunko, uh, Ezulu was much more mentally sharp, much more strategic in his thoughts. He was much more calculating. You see that in how he sends one of his son to go and learn the white man's ways and religion so that he can come back and report to him. 
So he's much more calculated in that way. Okonkwo was more like, like force, like <laughs> everything is with force, with strength, with power. So I like that about Ezulu. Um, uh, I think they both lacked emotional intelligence, which was ultimately their undoing and the undoing of their village and the people and perhaps all of us, you know, um, they weren't able to commandeer the emotions and the people around them and rally them and uh, find a, a much more emotionally robust way of dealing with this new thing, this new threat that came into their lives. And they all both ultimately succumbed to that. But um, so um, we'll, we'll go more later into comparing the two of them. For right now, I am just saying that Arrow of God and Azulu, I like them better. Before I proceed, I have to tell you guys, I speak Igbo. I speak Igbo, Igbo very well. But this book is the Igbo words and the Igbo writings, writings don't have the diacritical marks, so the dots under the, the vowels. So I don't know if it's, if I don't know the word or the context, I may mispronounce it, not because I don't know how to speak Igbo, but because I don't know, um, the writing doesn't tell me how to say the word. So I call it Ezulu, but it could be Ezulu or something. It could be something else, you know, but uh, Ezulu, that's how I call our main character in this book. Um, so uh, another thing that I liked about this book is that we actually get to see into the white man. In Okonkwo, we just, they're this abstract threat that is out there, that is coming in, but we don't get to hear from them. We don't get to see them. In this book, they're a lot more, uh, they're humanized. We get to see their thoughts. We get to see their feelings and hear from them, hear their perspective. And I like that about this book too. That's another reason why I like this book. So um, before I continue, if you have not read this book, this is going to be, a, there's going to be a lot of spoilers here. So you might want to pause, go read the book and come back later. Um, and But if you don't have plans of reading the book or you have already read it and you just want to hang around and we'll discuss it, then yes, sit tight and let, let's delve in now into the meat and potatoes of the book. So quickly, let me kind of review um, what is going on in the book. So we have Ezul, our chief priest of Omoaro. Um, he is, uh, Omoaro is a, a kingdom of six villages that came together because they had some, uh, they were dealing with similar threats. So they came together and said like, hey, we are going to be one village. And in doing that, they made a deity, a god, Ulu or Olo. I don't know how to, again, you guys already heard my spiel about the lack of diacritical marks. So I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but they came up with a dog, a dog. <laughs> they came up with a god, Ulu, and Ezulu is the chief priest. He's not the first chief priest. His father was the first chief priest, if I'm not mistaken. So the father, the father picks from one of his sons and, you know, uh, passes on the responsibility to actually Ulu or Ulu chooses from the, the children of the current chief priest and, you know, passes on the responsibility to him. So it starts off with, um, we have our Ezulu. One of his duties as a chief priest is to document the passage of time. So every time he watches for the new moon, he announces it. There's, um, uh, uh, an acknowledgement by the village that there is a new moon, so a new month. And each time he eats uh, the, a yam that was, he picked, I believe it was 13 yams from the last new yam festival. 
which marks the end of the planting season. Or, yeah, it begins the harvest. So it kind of marks the year. So what I'm trying to say is that he documents the passage of time and kind of keeps time for them. So each month he'll eat one yam out of the 13 that he selected from the last uh, plant uh, New Yam Festival. And that's how we acknowledge that time has passed. And and at the end of him eating all the 13 yams, it's time to harvest the new uh, yam that we planted do, do, uh, during the year. We have a new yam festival at the end of that. And from that festival, he picks another 13 and on and on we go. And so that's one of his responsibilities as the... Um, as the chief priest, it starts off with um, Omoaro contemplating going into battle with another a village. Okweri, uh, Ezulus, the current Ezulus mom is from Okweri, and Omoaro is contemplating going to battle, going to war with them over a piece of land that they believe it's theirs. Okweri thinks that it's theirs as well. Um, Ezulu, from his recollection from stories from his father and his mom, he believes that the, the, the land is not theirs. He believes that it belongs rightfully to Akwiri. So he's telling his clansmen, this is not ours. We don't need to go into this fight. If we go into that, this fight, we should not expect the gods to be on our side. And he was the only one who spoke, spoke up and spoke strongly about this. There were other people who spoke kind of in support of him, but not with as strong of a voice as he did, there was no equivocation in his delivery. He said, guys, this is not our fight. This is not our land. And so that kind of, uh, it kind of, uh, kind of raised some kind of um, disturbance between him and his clans people. It was the beginning and markings of a divide between him and certain people in his clans. Uh, maybe not the divide, the beginning, but it showed that he had quote-unquote enemies within his clan's people. So that's how it started. Eventually, they went to this war. And at that war, they lost, not outrightly. They were winning, and but uh, the white man who was already established in Okweri came in, stopped the war, broke all their guns, took them to court. And at the court, Ezulu was the only person, according to the white man, who spoke the truth because he said, like I told you guys, he said, this is not ours. This is this is not our land. So this was the fi first time Captain Winterbottom, the the white man who was presiding over that area, saw Ezulu and he immediately liked him, took a liking towards him because in his mind, he was truthful. He was a man of integrity and he noticed him then. So remember that. But this extra... Um, this favor that he garnered with the white man also deepened the divide that he had with his clans people who were already kind of looking at him kind of funny. But and then when this excuse me, when this um when this happened, it did not help his case, Ezulu's case with his clans people. Okay. So remember that. Um I'm just trying to make sure I don't miss anything here. So I'm going through my notes. Mm -mm 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 -mm. So his clans people felt betrayed. Right when uh, when Captain Winterbottom took his side, so they felt betrayed, and um, so now we we kind of switch over to exploring Captain Winter Captain Winterbottom. Captain Winterbottom is the 
presiding i don't know what his official title is but he's the kind of he's the person keeping uh charge over the natives of that area and he is also a dissenting voice much like Azula. he had stayed with he had lived in the land so he was starting to have a native appreciation of the the laws and how things happen or how the rules of engagement in the Igbo land, unlike the people back home in England or in Britain who were, um, you know, given out orders, but didn't know how those orders would actually translate in Igbo. So many times he would push back and he would say these things wouldn't work. And that was um, kind of making him fall out of favor with a lot of his colleagues and people uh, back home. So he wasn't getting a lot of the promotions uh, that other people were getting. And he was finally coming to the point where he was getting irritated by it. He felt like he should have been advanced um, by now. One of the things that uh, at this point, the the British are trying to establish something called um, a warrant chief, who is kind of like a go-between between a go between between them and the natives and um he doesn't want to do that captain winterbottom doesn't think that is a good idea because in Ibo there's something called which means that the Ibos don't have a king there is there are multiple rulers kind of broken up all over but there is not one king captain winterbottom had lived with the Ibos enough to appreciate this and know this and he has seen that every time the British try to install and institute this as this king that it doesn't go well so he was pushing back you know he didn't want that to be but finally he was at his wits and he's like fine whatever you know let me get something let me get promoted let me move in through the ranks like my my counterpart. So he finally relinquished and said, I'm going to institute this warrant chief. But he said, I'm not going to make the mistakes I've made in the past and try to give these this positions to, quote unquote, the converts or the Christians, because he had had experience and realized that that didn't go so well. So he remembered Isulu, this one man of integrity that he uh, that spoke the truth back when there was war and he said okay if i'm gonna do this this is the guy i'm gonna make it you know he didn't remember if he was still alive he hadn't seen him since the war but he said look, we're gonna look for him and send for him so he sends people to go out looking for Izulu and uh to give him this uh this uh position so that's where we, so at this point he has sent for Izulu. in the meantime uh, some significant things are happening in in the life of Izulu with his with his clansmen and his family. You know, life is happening, and one of the things that is going on is that you know he's people are jealous of him. Like the I already kind of told you guys, there was some kind of divide. You know, he's one that he's he seems to have a very very strong personality, and like I said, he does not mind speaking up and sp and uh, uh, speaking against things that he doesn't feel that is right and so that doesn't always go well with people people don't always know how to digest and take that in um so um um so he's going on his living life he has four children and by all accounts he seems to have one favorite the youngest uh called one for oh, my battery light life is showing which is going to keep going and if it dies we'll, we'll, we'll do a second episode you guys will have to catch me on another episode so uh, he has a he has a, a favorite uh, one for his youngest. He has four other sons. There's Obika, there's Edogo. Edogo is the first. Obika Odu Oduche. 
is the third and is wonderful. Oduche is the son that he has sent off to the white man's education and religion. Not because he wants him to become a Christian or be cool with the white man. He just wants him to go back, gather intel and report back to him. That was his strategy for doing that. And that also his class people were not liking that. They were like, why are you sending, you know, one of us over there? How is the chief priest of Ulu sending his child to go to go learn about Christianity? But they didn't understand the reason, the 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 strategy behind that. They didn't see that. So that was that was going on. Uh, also, Obuka, who is his mo- his most spirited son, that's the second son. He is he's he he seems like a very charismatic life of the party. Um, everybody he's very handsome. Everybody knows and likes him. He drinks a lot. Just a very very vivacious, lively character. You grow to like him, and he also mentions about how things are always different for him. He was whipped by the white man because he came late to work that they were not being paid for um because he was drinking <laughs> so he was uh he was drunk and had a hangover and he came and he was you know he was whipped the whole point of this is that he kind of stood out in all of Ezulu's children for he even said himself that his things seem to be always different like things always go funny with him so um he went on to get married and um uh, also i wanted to say another thing about him he's a very he's very fierce defender of his family his you see that in the way he goes on things with his father one of his uh his sisters was being physically abused in his uh, in her marital home he went over there and almost beat the the husband to death tied him up and brought him back to their house tied him underneath this breadfruit tree and Apparently, there was one very ripe one that, that could have fallen and maimed the, the poor guy who was already at the point of death or an inch to his death. But he, this is Obika, a very spirited and very lively character. Um, so, But he got married. He eventually got married. And uh, something weird. This was the first time Obika in the book had a weird encounter with a medicine man. Um, I have to tell you that Ezulu, that is Obika's father, his half-brother is a medicine man. A medicine man is somebody who performs rituals and things like that, you know. Their father, Ezulu, and this medicine man, I believe his name was Okiki, he was a priest and the medicine man. So the, both powers were within him. But his sons, it was split. Ezulu became the priest. His uh, Ezulu's half-brother became the medicine man. And people argue that uh, there was and they, they weren't, friendly. Ezulu did not like his half-brother. Nobody really knew why, but people who didn't like Ezulu said that he was jealous that the powers were split, that he wanted all the power to himself. Uh, Chinua never told us actually what happened. There was just speculation. So this was the, uh, this, I wanted to highlight this because this is important in what eventually transpired in the whole book. So instead of using his uncle Ezulu's half-brother asked the medicine man that would perform a particular ritual after you get married. They hired a medicine man who was obviously subpar to their uncle, was not as good as his uncle. But again, their uncle was not on good terms with his brother, Ezulu. So they used this almost quack medicine man. And he did something weird at the 
uh, at the ceremony in um one of the things that was supposed to happen, they had a hen that was supposed to be buried in the ground um, during the ceremony. But this medicine man took the, the hen home. Part of it was that they said he was hungry. He, he probably was struggling. And so he saw, saw an opportunity to, well, we don't know why he did that. Maybe because he was hungry or maybe he did have some ill will towards the family. But the point is, Izulu did not use his brother for whatever reason. He knew why. And this was the first weird encounter Ubika had with a medicine man and you have to remember medicine men are thought to have powers they can make things happen they could put bad juju on you they could that ritual arguably he could purposely um purposely sabotage the ritual and the family that he was doing the ritual over because this ritual is supposed to obviously garner good favor for Bika and his new wife. And here he was, he was supposed to bury the hen into the ground. He took the hen home. And during the ceremony, Obika and his family were looking around like, uh, was he supposed to do that? They went home. They asked the Zulu. They said, have you ever seen somebody actually take the hen home? He was supposed to, wasn't he supposed to be buried in the ground? Azulu was like, no, we haven't seen that. Uh, but you have done your part. Your part was to provide. And whatever that man did, it's on him. So I thought it was important to highlight that. 